So today is the conclusion, the finale of the series that's gone five parts called Enemies of the Heart. Again, uh, kind of a heavy uh, title. And just to review for those of you who weren't here over the last few weeks, and of course you can listen online if you go to our website, uh, cityreachbrossard.com, connect and listen. Uh, and you can listen online. All the, the messages are posted there. Uh, but we talked about in the first part this idea that the, the world, the culture around us, uh, it, it, it has a message to us about the way that we live and the way that we behave. And uh, much of it is, you know, we learn it in an early age. Well, the way you behave is likely going to dictate the way that your life turns out. And uh, you, you behave this way and bad things will likely happen. You behave the better way and likely good things will happen. So, we, you know, we indoctrinate our children in this. And, and it's not a bad message. It's just that the message of the Bible is a deeper message than that. And the Bible is asking, well, okay, you can, your behavior is something that you can, other people can see your pretty behavior, but what's really going on on the inside? Uh, because the Bible would teach that what's coming out is a reflection of what's on the inside. And sometimes what's on the inside can be a total mess. Uh, we, keep it, we keep it in and we hope it doesn't bubble over. But eventually, bloop, it bubbles over. And so the, the scripture would ask us to examine our heart, our spiritual heart the, from the Proverbs, guard your heart for it is a wellspring of life. And so the, the Bible would call us to examine what's going on on the inside, which is a much more difficult thing than to simply control the outside behavior, right? And we talked about four heart toxins over the last few weeks, four things that can make the spiritual heart diseased, even as the physical heart can be diseased and we may not know it, so can the spiritual heart have all of these sicknesses and it's like a time bomb waiting to explode and it usually explodes on the people who we care about and love the most. Um, and there's always a debt-to-debtor relationship with these toxins, we said. So the first one was guilt. And in guilt, it's I-O-U. So I took something from you, I did something to you, and I live with this profound sense of guilt all the time, and I'm always owing, and I live in that sort of narrative that I owe you. And the remedy for guilt was, do you remember? Starts with a C. Confession, yeah. And we talked about what confession really is and what confession really isn't. Uh, because we have some misinterpretations, misconceptions about confession. Uh, and the next one we talked about was anger. And in anger, it's not I owe you, but it's you. You owe me. You took something from me at some point, or a group of people took something from me, and they are going to pay back what they owe to me, and I'm going to seek personal vengeance on that. I have a vendetta against this person or these people or this system or whatever it is, and I will make them pay. Uh, and this quest for personal vengeance, you owe me. And the remedy for anger was forgiveness. Yeah, so you learn about confession. You learn about forgiveness. And forgiveness is not forgetting. It's not condoning. It's not accepting. Forgiveness is when you choose to cancel the person's debt against you. Uh, they owe you something, you cancel it, 
and you trust God to deal with the person and to mete out his own divine judgment and consequence on the person, and this is forgiveness. Um, and last week, we talked about greed, and in greed, it's, it's not I owe you, it's not you owe me, but it's I owe me. Right? And we talked about Ebenezer Scrooge, you know, the quintessential example of greed uh, and, and what greed looks like. And we, we said that the remedy of greed is generosity or giving. Now, I had a lot of comments about that message, uh, some great conversations about that message uh, from the story, you know, the little story that Jesus told of the, of the rich farmer, right? And you remember, he, he's rich. Uh, but his ground gives him a big harvest. And he says, wow, what am I going to do with all this harvest? And he says to himself, aha, I've got it. I'm going to tear down my existing barns, and I'm going to build bigger barns. I'm going to take all the grain, all the extra harvest stored in my nice big barns for myself. I'm going to retire early, take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Ha, ha, ha. I've got it all figured out. And the story goes that God comes to him in the middle of the night, and he says, you're a foolish man. Because your life is going to be taken from you tonight. Who then is going to get all of your stuff? And this is the story about greed that Jesus told. And he said uh, that the point of it was this is how it will be for those who are rich toward themselves and are rich toward God. Now, just, just to give you, expand on something before we go further today, um, God has nothing against wealth. He, he, people think that, that, well, if you're a Christian, you have to be poor because Christians are poor. Uh, you will not find this in the Bible. You do not see God saying, oh, wealth is a bad thing. What you see is that the hoarding of wealth for your own personal benefit and riches toward yourself and the love of all of that material and all of that wealth, and you keep it in for yourself, this God has an issue with. But he does not have an issue with wealth. There are many of you in this room who, by North American standards, would be, quote, unquote, wealthy. Uh, but you choose to do things with your wealth to bless other people or to, to bless things that, that work for the kingdom of God. Uh, so God has nothing against wealth. It's what we do with the wealth that's important. Uh, and number two, um, you know, you're talking about tithing and how most People in most Bible-believing churches give about 2 to 3%. Most, most Christians do not tithe. Uh, I just need to, to you know, let you know the realities about people in churches. Um, what I have seen is that usually the people, not all the time, but often, uh, the people who talk a lot uh, and have the biggest um, voices, uh, the biggest criticisms about the church, uh, the, the most to say about, you know, I don't think this is right or this is right or I think this doctrine is wrong or I think the pastor's out to lunch. The, the most vocal critics, the people who are large and in charge, the people who are very self-important, many of, many of those people don't give. <laughs> they, they may talk a lot, but they don't give. What I have observed is that the people who tend to be a lot more quiet, a lot more in the background, a lot more reserved, sometimes nobody knows their name, they come and they go, they're very faithful, often those are the people who are, who are funding the work of the kingdom of God. And nobody knows it except them and God and, you know, the bookkeeper. Uh, so it's very interesting to observe when you see, you know, Jesus said where your treasure is, 
there your heart will be also. So, you know, and I've had conversations with people, listen, if you're at two and three percent, well, try four, you know, try trusting God with four, try trusting him with five. I guarantee you, as you trust God, you will see his hand of provision uh, in your life. Okay, so that was uh, uh, giving the the remedy for greed. Um, And today we're going to talk about the final one, and this is jealousy, jealousy. And in jealousy, it's not I owe you, you owe me, I owe me. It's God, God, you owe me. God, you owe me. And I bet you never thought about jealousy in such a fashion. Uh, remember, in all of these, these uh, heart toxins, there's no magic bullets. Uh, most of the time, God's not going to snap his little finger and, you know, remarkably remedy all of your internal problems and all of your heart toxins. Most of the time, he wants you to do the work. He wants you to get into the scripture. He wants you to learn skills and new ways, new habits of living. Guard your heart, this self-examination, self-confrontation, and you learn new habits, new ways of doing things, and that's how you fix your life. Uh, So today, heart toxin number four, God owes me. Jealousy just simply defined, we want something that someone else has. So in the picture, you know, it starts at an early age. You got the, I mean, the little boy, he kissed her. Uh, he didn't kiss the one on, on the right side, and she's pretty upset. She, she's jealous. She wanted the kiss. You know, the kids, kids can't hide it, right? You can see their, their jealousy right away. And those of you who have children, uh, you know, more than one, y- you see that they get jealous of each other all the time. We want something that someone else has, and that's a very simple definition of it. Uh, it doesn't only happen with kids. It happens with adults all the time. Uh, so, you know, we look at physical appearance, so-and-so is better looking than I am. That's not fair, right? I mean, uh, just in my own, my own personal life, you may find it a little bit funny. Uh, I grew up in sports, okay? I loved sports, still love to love sports today and still go to the gym and all that stuff. Uh, but I always, always was the shortest, skinniest kid on the team. Always, until I was about 17, 18, I finally started to get a little bit taller. But I was always the shortest kid, the skinniest kid all the time, a little little broomstick body, okay? I still have little tiny little stick legs, okay? They're like broomsticks. And I cannot do anything to make my legs grow. It doesn't matter what I do. They don't grow. They're like little sticks, And so when I was growing up, I used to look at these people, some of the other athletes that I played with in team sports and all that. It's like, why is it that they don't have stick legs, but I do? Why am I the shortest and skinniest kid on this team? Why am I the kid who's always picked last? Because I'm the shortest and the skinniest kid. And to this day, I still have these little stick legs. I mean, if you see me in shorts in the summer, you're probably going to say, my word, those are tiny little, you know, he's got tiny little legs. I still, to this day, uh, look at men in the gym who have big calves. And I, you know, I can feel that jealousy. Why is it that I got ripped off in the calf distribution department? Not fair. I'm jealous physical appearance. It's a funny story, but 
sometimes it gets a little more serious. Uh, we're jealous of people's health. How come I got sick? How come I have to deal with this problem and they don't? I, I, I want what they have. Uh, money and possessions, material. I mean, we, again, we live in a materialistic culture. We looked at this last week. And so we want that money, those possessions that other people have. Their car's better. Their grass is greener. Their house is better. Their vacations are nicer. They wear nicer clothes. They have a bigger salary. We want their job. You know, why am I working at Tim Hortons and this person who's, you know, less intelligent and rather dim-witted is, is an executive in some company? Doesn't seem very fair. I got ripped off. Uh, you know, we look, we look across the street. Uh, the, the, this person's family is, you know, all well-to-do. Their kids are always smiling. Mine are trying to kill each other. My wife hates me. My dog hates me. My cat hates me. I'm jealous of the family across the street. They're goody two-shoes. They've got it all together. Why, why, why? People are successful. We're jealous of their success. Their wife is prettier. Their husband's more handsome. I mean, it, we're jealous often, and it's when we want something that someone else has. Uh, you know the example, I don't know if you've followed this, but there's a story not too far from us in New Hampshire um, where a lady won the Powerball half a billion dollars. I wish you'd come to this church and tithe it. Half a billion, no, that's another ethical question, okay? Half a billion dollars she won. But this lady does not want people to know her identity. We know she's a female. That's all we know. And she has gone to the courts to, 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 to have this rectified because the rules are very clear. You have to identify yourself if you want the loot. And she's saying, uh-uh, I don't want anyone to know my name. Why? Because she knows about jealousy. That's why. She knows that her life will become a living nightmare when people know who she is. They're going to be after her money. She's afraid for her life. So she's gone to the courts and said, I want this money, but I don't want anyone to know who I am. And they say she's losing $15,000 a day in, in interest on this loot uh, as she waits for the matter to be decided uh, in the courts. Well, it's because she's very, very aware that jealousy is a real and powerful uh, toxin, and it governs the way that people live. I have seen jealousy in the church. Uh, the church can be an incubator of jealousy. Why? Because it's a community. Because you have people coming together. And what do people do? They observe one another, right? And they say, where did she get that hat? You know, how come she's walking around in this nice dress and she's strutting around? And who she thinks she is? You know, and, and look at that ring on her finger, you know, and and. How come he's wearing nicer clothes? And wow, he got himself a new car. And oh, look at their kids. You know, they're all perfect and minor. And even in the church, I've seen it can be an incubator for jealousy. Well, how come he got asked to pray and I didn't? Well, how come he's in this position and I'm not? Well, he's a better preacher than I am. Well, his church is bigger than mine. You know, there are all these kinds of comparisons happen. I've seen them in the church as well. And I've seen Christians who are, in, who are jealous of sometimes the most pagan of non-Christians. 
And they say, you know, I'm doing this Christian thing. I go to church every week. I do all these things. And, I'm, you know, they're trying to follow Jesus. And my life just, I'm miserable all the time. And I see my unsaved, pagan, totally non-churched, he cheats on his wife all the time. He's a scoundrel. He's a thief. He's all these things. And he's happy as a clam. He's healthy as, as can be. And I'm miserable. And I'm very jealous of what that person has. I've seen that. I've seen Christians be, and there's, it doesn't make any sense. If I serve God, I should have those things. How come he's got them, and I don't? When you want something that someone else has, we looked at the story uh, when, we, when we talked about anger. Uh, it also deals with jealousy, the story of Cain and Abel. Here you have jealousy, classic display of jealousy. So, so Cain uh, uh, works the crops, Abel works the livestock. Abel brings his offering to God uh, uh, of livestock. Cain brings his offering to God. It's agriculture. And for whatever reason, we're not sure what the reason, God looks at Abel's offering with favor. And with Cain's, he does not. And what does Cain do? Well, we looked at the you owe me. So he, he's, he's looking at his brother Abel, and he says, you know what? You stole the acceptance and the blessing of God from me, and you owe me, and I'm going to make you pay. And he made him pay with his life, the first family, and you've got the brothers killing each other in the very first family. It's, a, it's quite a story. What did he want, though? He wanted something that his brother got. So not only was he angry, he's also jealous very, very jealous to the point that it drove him to commit cold-blooded murder because he wanted something that his brother had and that he believed his brother had actually taken from him, most likely. Uh, another story that, that you might be familiar with in the Old Testament uh, dealing with jealousy is the story of David and his affair with Bathsheba. And you say, well, how does that really have to do with jealousy? Uh, when you look at the story in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12, uh, what do you see if you read it? It's a couple of chapters, but it, it reads like headline news, to be honest. So you have King David, and he's, he's powerful. He's in authority. I mean, he's the top person. He is the boss. And everyone is off to war under his authority, and he decides that he's going to stay home in Jerusalem. And the story is told in 2 Samuel 11 that he, you know, he's walking around one night, he goes up on his roof, and he gazes upon the beauty of a woman bathing. And he looks at her, and he wants to know, uh, you know, he's very interested in this woman. And the way that we typically think of the story is that David, you know, he was inflamed with lust for this woman, and he brought her to himself, and he had the affair. Turns out the person is Uriah is married, is Uriah's wife, and so he organizes and plots to have Uriah murdered on the battlefield. He takes Bathsheba to be his wife. Ho-hum standard affair, we think. This is not a standard affair. Not in that sense. What's going on here is that Uriah, if you know who he was, he was in day, on David's team. 
Uriah was one of David's mighty men. He, he was effectively in authority. He was a, a leader. It, David knew Uriah very, very well. And it's likely that he also knew who Uriah's wife was. And so he's looking and he sees this woman. Okay, perhaps he doesn't realize it's his wife, but we're told in the story that when David sends people to go and bring her to himself, they say, isn't this Bathsheba? Uh, isn't this uh, Uriah's wife? Well, David knows exactly who the woman is, and he most likely has been thinking about this for a long, long time. So he's got one of his own men. He's betraying one of his own men, one of the people on his team who he knows. And this man, Uriah, is very, very loyal to David. What does David do? He brings Bathsheba to himself. She consents. The two of them have an affair. But there's a problem. She's pregnant. Uh-oh. So David, he's going to find a way to clean this up. You say, what does this have to do with jealousy? He's taking this man's wife. He knows exactly. He's jealous. He's jealous of the fact that, that Uriah has her, and he does not. And he's like, I'm King David. I can have what I want, and I want her. And this is what he did. This was a calculated affair. This was not a, well, he just had the idea when he was looking at her in the night. He knew who this man was, and he knew who this woman was. And now that he's got a problem, she's pregnant. So what does David do? He says to himself, oh, I got this all figured out. So Uriah comes back from the battlefield. And uh, he, he, David sends word to Joab, who's another person in his cabinet, so to speak, and he says, bring Uriah back uh, from battle. He sends message to Joab, who is out there with him. He says, bring me back Uriah the Hittite. And he brings him, he says, he says Uriah, how's the, how was the battle? How are things? How are the men? He says, Uriah, you know what you need to do? You need to take a day off, and you need to go, and you need to be with your family. You need to be with your wife. You need to, you need to you know, take a night off, so to speak. And so he sends Uriah home to be with his wife. And so what's he going to do? He's going to mask it. He's going to say, well, look, if he, he's been on the battlefield, he's going to go home. He's going to be with his wife, if you know what I mean. He's going to be with his wife. And then I can mask the pregnancy. Easy problem solved. The baby will be his baby. I don't care about the baby anyway. I just wanted the woman. I got the woman. So this is what I'm going to do. And he arranges it, and Uriah goes home, but he sleeps outside in the street. <laughs> he, and he, and he, it's, he throws a wrench into David's plan. And he finds out that Uriah went and slept in the street. And why did he sleep in the street? And Uriah's logic is, listen, the ark is out in the open. The men are protecting the ark. I'm not going to go and be with my family and take a night off. How could I do such a thing? I, my job is to be loyal to you, David, and to be loyal to God in that ark. And I'm, I'm not, I, I, I don't want to think about my wife right now in my home life. I'm protecting the ark. I'm with the men. I'm in the battle. I'm in the game. And so he foils David's dastardly plan. And so David says, oh, okay, now I'm starting to get angry. Uh, this man is not doing what I'm asking him to do, and I'm King David, and he's starting to get me upset now. So now I'm going to have to pull out another, another trick up my sleeve. I'm going to throw a little party in my house, and I'm going to invite Uriah to come. I'm going to get him drunk, 
and then I'm going to send him home, and then he's going to be with his wife, and enough of this nonsense. So he gets, he gets Uriah over to his house, gets him drunk, sends him home. He sleeps in the street again. Even though he's drunk, he's still loyal to the ark, to David, to God. He sleeps in the street again. Oh, now he's really, really making me angry. This is becoming a problem, and I will fix this problem. So he comes up with his final, uh, his final uh, part of the plan, uh, and he says, um, we're going to send uh, Uriah back to the battlefield, and I'm going to write a letter to Joab, my trusted associate who's in my cabinet, who's over there on the battlefield, and I'm going to pack it in David's bag. And in his very bag, there's a letter to Joab that says this, you go and you send the men into the thickest of the battle, and you leave Uriah there so that he will be killed. And the letter goes in Uriah's bag, <laughs> unbeknownst to him, over to Joab. Joab reads the letter, and Joab is loyal to David too. And he, and he cheats his own. I mean, it's, you look at the politics of today and everybody who's ripping everybody off in all these different nations, it's, it's right out of the today's news, just different wrapping paper. So Joab gets the letter. He sends David out. The men go out into the fiercest part of the battle. Uh, sorry, he sends Uriah out. Uriah goes out there and they leave him there. They withdraw and they leave Uriah there to die. But... There's more casualties than expected, shall we say, uh, but Uriah does indeed die. So Joab, he says, okay, I'm going to send the message back to David in Jerusalem now, but I'm going to tell the messenger to do it in a very clever way, and it's what we call the bad news first way. So he said, tell David all the bad news. So you tell David, you give him an account of the battle, uh, you tell him that this person died and that person died and there were many casualties and all these things happened and, it, and David's probably going to get upset. But when he gets upset, throw this line in at the end. Ah, but Uriah is dead. And so that's exactly what happens. The messenger goes back, tells David, David's getting angry. He hears all these people have died. And then the messenger says, and by the way, Uriah is dead. Oh, and you see David's countenance change, and, uh, and David says, um, uh, uh, he says, well, you know, life happens. Uh, and so uh, in verse 23 of chapter 11, the men overpowered us and came out against us. Out in the open, we drove them back, uh, but then the archers shot at your servants on the wall, and some of your king's servants, they, they died. Moreover... Your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead. Give him the bad news first and throw in the good news about Uriah. And David told the messenger, okay, you go back to Joab who's on the battlefield and you say to Joab, oh, it's okay. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. You know, we live by the sword. We die by the sword. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. He goes back to Joab, gives him the news. Of course, Joab knows about some of this plot anyway because he was told to put Uriah in the battlefield so he'd get killed. Uriah's wife uh, uh, hears is Bathsheba, who, with whom David had the affair. Uriah's wife hears that the, her husband's dead. 
and she mourns for him while expecting. And after the time of mourning was done, David brought her to his house. She became his wife. He has many wives in the Old Testament. We can count at least eight. He brings her to be his wife, and he thinks everything is over, problem solved, everything is good. Three things that will satisfy your jealousy. Number one, you get what you want. Or you get something very similar to what you want. Somebody else had it, but you got it. Uh, you, you, you got the car. Uh, you, you, you found a way. And you have what you want. Okay? Number two, they lose what they have. When you have that satisfaction, when someone who you're jealous of loses what they have, then you know that's a bad, bad jealousy. The Bible does speak of a good jealousy, by the way. Uh, God, we're told, is a jealous God. So he doesn't like it when we worship other things. It makes him jealous like a jealous husband would be if when their spouse cheats on them or when their wife cheats on them, they're jealous. Okay, that's, that's a, a kind of a godly jealousy. But this kind of jealousy here, when you're happy, when someone you're jealous of loses what they have, you have that satisfaction, something bad happened to them, they lost the car, they lost the house, they lost their job, ha, ha, ha. Ooh, that's, <laughs> that's toxic, okay? Or you just take it from them. Well, David, he did all three. He, he, he got the girl, he took it, he took the girl away. He, I mean, everything. He did all three. And we're told at the end of 2 Samuel chapter 11, uh, 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 but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And then we have the prophet Nathan who comes on the scene. And Nathan says to David, let me tell you a little story. You got a rich guy. He's got a whole bunch of livestock, a whole bunch of lambs, livestock. He's, he's very wealthy. But then you have a poor man. And he's very, very poor. All he has is a little sheep, a little female sheep. That's all he has. And he takes the sheep, this poor man, and he raises the sheep almost like one of his children. The, the little baby, baby girl sheep even sleeps in his arms. And he treats this sheep just like one of his children, this poor man. And lo and behold, someone comes into town to visit the rich man. And he wants to entertain him. And so he wants to pre uh, prepare a meal for him. And rather than taking one of his own livestock, of which he has plenty, to prepare for this man to eat, he takes the little baby sheep that belongs to the poor man, and he brings it to this visitor to eat. That's the story, David. And David hears the story, and he says he's burning with anger. He says, that man there who did that to that poor man, he should pay. He should pay so angry when he hears the story. And David the prophet looks, uh, Nathan the prophet looks at David, and he says, David, you are that man. You are that man. You stole that little sheep. You stole that man's wife. You betrayed him. You betrayed God. And he gives a litany of consequence a litany to, to David. He tells him that son that's in Bathsheba, that son that you have with Bathsheba, that son's going to die. And the sword is not going to leave your house. And immorality is not going to leave your house. You did it in the dark, but I'm going to do it in broad daylight. I'm going to have it done to members of your family in broad daylight, David. The consequences for your jealousy and your sin are going to be very, very grave, David. Very, very bad. And you, you, you can read in 2 Samuel chapter 12 how David comes to a place of confession. 
and he comes to a place of understanding what the consequences are, etc., etc., but he does all these things, gets what he wants, they lose what they have, you take it from them. Terrible, terrible way to solve jealousy. What's the real problem? What's the roots of it? And what's the remedy of jealousy? It's amazing how the scripture is so practical in this area. And just three little verses of scripture from James chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. This is what he says. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Just pause for a second. You who are fighting with someone. You're fighting with your spouse. You're fighting with your kids. You're fighting with your coworker. You're fighting with your boss. You're watching your kids fight with one another. What causes fights and quarrels among you, he says? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? The, the Greek word for desires there, if you transliterate it into, into the English language, it's hedone. Uh, we get the word hedonism from this word. You pronounce it hedone. Uh, and it's a kind of a desire, a pleasure, uh, you know, for food, uh, for success, for power, for sex, for things like this. It's this insatiable desire. Uh, don't you know that they come from your desires that battle within you, he says. And he goes on and he says, you want something, but you don't get it. This is, this is jealousy right? You want something, you don't get it, and so what do you do? You kill, like Cain did. You covet, so you want it, like David did, but you cannot get what you want. You are jealous, and this is why you're quarreling and you're fighting. This is why in many, many couples, uh, there's quarreling and fighting because they're both not getting what they want. I've sat down with many, many couples over the years, and you hear the same old story. You hear, well, the man, he wants this. The woman, she wants that. And neither of, them are, neither of them are getting what they want. And so they take vengeance on one another within the marriage, and they end up bitter, bitter enemies against one another. You want something, but you don't get it. So you kill, you covet, but you cannot get what you want. You quarrel, and you fight. And what happens, uh, uh, you, you do not have. Your desire is not satisfied, and he says, because you do not ask God. God owes me. Your, your, your beef is not with that person who you're jealous of. Your beef ultimately is with God. When he was dealing out nice calf muscles, he skipped me. Who's in charge of calf muscles? Who can control their own calf muscles? Well, it's God. Even, even people who are unbelievers and have a faint concept of deism and that there could be a God somewhere, they recognize, well, you know, some people just seem to have a better lot in life. It's like fate has dealt them a better hand. And so we waste our time being jealous of the person. What did they do to deserve your jealousy? Okay, it's true in some cases people will try to intentionally make you jealous, but oftentimes we're jealous of people who don't even know that we're jealous of them because of what they have, because of what they've achieved in life, etc., etc. You do not have, James says, because you do not ask God. You don't ask God. That's why you don't have. That's why, you're, that's why your desires are unsatisfied because you've left God out of the equation. And then he goes further. He says, when you do ask God, those of you who do pray, 
you, you, you do not receive what you ask for. And he gives the reason why. He says, because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your hedone, on your pleasures again. And so here's the crux of the matter. The root of it is your issue is with God and you're frustrated with him. You should start admitting that rather than being jealous of someone else or something else. You're just going to tire yourself out and frustrate yourself. It'll lead you to a path of destruction. When you realize what's really going on is, I think that God owes me. Okay, that's a false premise. It's not true that God owes you. Um, you, you owe God everything, right? We owe, the debt that we owe to God for our sin is an unpayable debt. God, ha God has paid a debt that we could never pay. So the idea that he somehow owes us is a false idea. But it's an idea that we tend to believe. And this is what leads us to jealousy. So what is James saying? Your, your problem is you're not bringing those hedone to God himself. And here's the, the remedy, the ultimate remedy for this God owes me mentality. It's prayer. So I just need to tell you that I've, 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 dis, I've done something a little bit deceptive to you over the last four or five weeks. Um, I've taught you about confession and forgiveness and giving and now prayer. Those are four spiritual disciplines of the Christian walk. And I've just taught them to you in a bit of a backwards fashion, that's all. But that's what you've learned. And prayer is the backbreaker of greed. What happens when you start to bring those hedone to God? Well, it's going to expose and it's going to transform your motives. So here's what happens when you pray and you bring those things to God that you want. Maybe they're not good things that you're bringing to God. What's God going to say when you bring those things to God and you pray about them? What's he going to say? Lord, I want to win the Powerball. Or Lord, I want Uriah's wife. What's he going to say? What, what will he say? He'll say no. Okay, can you handle that? Let me tell you, God can handle your foolish prayer requests. He can handle them. He has big, big shoulders. So if you ask God for something and it's the wrong thing, God will say, no, it's not good for you to have Uriah's wife. But you don't do that. This is the issue that James is saying. And when you do do it, you do it with wrong motives. So it's like the couple who's fighting all the time and, and uh, you know, the, the, the wife prays, Lord, change my husband. Lord, change him. He's a scoundrel. He's this, he's that. Lord, change my husband. The prayer that you should be praying, Lord, change me. The problem is, with, is me. I can't control this stupid fool. I can control myself. I can control myself. Pardon my language. But I have seen it so many times. Oh, God, I pray. Change that person. Change my boss. Change my children. They're vipers. No, you need to change yourself is what you, you need to be praying about yourself. When you start to say, hey, God, what, I'm, I'm so frustrated with this. I'm so frustrated with this situation. I want this. I want this. I want this. Well, watch what happens when your motives are wrong. God will say, no, 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 no. 
when you start getting a few yeses, then you learn, ah, the, my, my motive must have been right that time. Can I tell you, as your pastor, I get a lot of no's, an awful lot of no's, <laughs> but I get a few yeses, and the more yeses that I get, the more I realize, ah, 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 I see, I see James was right. If my motives start changing and they start being transformed, then I learn how to pray God's will. In the book of James, he, he, he tells you a few things that you can ask God for. One of them is wisdom. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God because he gives that one generously. <laughs> I ask for wisdom almost every day. <laughs> God, you said I could ask for it, so I'm asking. Give me wisdom. I need to make the right decision at the right time in this situation. Wisdom, wisdom, wisdom. Uh, James also says you can ask for healing. He says that. He says, any one of you sick, let him call the elders of the church, anoint him with oil. In the name of the Lord, the prayer of faith will make the sick well. And we talked about confession and how that relates to that. When a person prays for someone to be healed and they've confessed their sin, their prayer can be powerful. James says, you ask for healing. Ask, 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 ask. As long as that person's sick, you keep asking. I don't know if God's going to heal them or not, but you keep asking. You keep asking for wisdom. You keep asking for healing. But what you ask for, you ask with the right motive, you see. And when you do that, it begins to transform my motives. I, I, I see that my contentment is not in that other person who I'm jealous of. My contentment is ultimately found in God. I don't need the car that that person has. I don't need Bathsheba. My wife is just fine. Right? I don't need that person's kids. I don't need their success. I don't need their power. I don't need any of it because I've learned to find my contentment in God. Psalm 37, verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will grant you the desires of your heart. Hey, why not go to the big boss? Why are you going to be jealous of somebody else? Go to the one who's at the top of the chain, my friend. Go to the one who controls it all and is sovereign over all. Go to him with your desires. Go to him with those things that battle within you and watch how he starts to transform you so that you learn, ah, I can find contentment. I can find pleasure in God himself. I don't need to be jealous of anyone, this is what breaks the grip of jealousy, and then you start to celebrate when someone else has something that you were jealous of. God, I am happy that that coworker got the promotion. When you're able to do that, when you're able to say, I genuinely am happy that they're doing well, then you know that your heart is rid of that sickness of jealousy. Make, it'll make you sick because you'll never ultimately be satisfied when you're so jealous of that thing or that person. You've got to find it somewhere else, and it's only in God, the one who's at the top of the chain, that you will find your contentment and be free, be free from jealousy. Would you stand with me, please? I'd like the band to come back. You sang that song about being a child of God. When you know who you are in God, my friends, when you know that your identity is in him, it'll rid you of jealousy, it'll rid you of anger, it'll rid you of guilt, it'll rid you of greed, and every other toxin that will come to try and infect your heart. God, I pray today in the name of Jesus for transformation in people's lives. 
Lord, that things that, that have been taught, when you would just take things, the Spirit of the Lord would just take things and speak into people's hearts and speak into people's spirit, God. I pray for those who, who all four of these toxins are a constant, constant struggle. God, we learn new skills. We learn about confession. We learn about forgiveness. We learn about giving. We learn, God, about prayer. And help us, Lord, to put these things into practice, that you would change us, God, from the inside out, that we would more and more, we would take on the likeness of Christ in our character, in our speech, in our behaviors, in our attitudes, and even inside.